When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. If you feel there's more to life than iPhones and iPads and mindless consumerism, if you're open to receiving information in all forms in any number of ways, if organized religion, organized political movements, and any kind of collectivism doesn't just quite cut it for you, if you engage in critical thinking, if you think for yourself, if you have peace and love in your heart and Jack Daniels in your bloodstream, if you believe that seriousness is a disease, if you're curious, then come, let us go on a journey together as we explore the outer limits of inner truth. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, we're going to focus on children who remember their past lives. And if you do some quick searching, you're going to find several cases of children that have recalled specific information about a life they have lived. And I've always wondered that if reincarnation truly exists, then why doesn't everyone remember their previous lives? According to a number of spiritual teachers, apparently, if you remembered your previous life, it probably would be counterproductive to your evolutionary goals of this one. So say, for example, your last life, you were the raging alcoholic and you died of alcoholism. If you came into this life knowing that, you probably would never touch a beer. However, doing so might deprive you of a learning experience, learning at a deeper level how to temper or balance your alcohol consumption. And if you knew what your last lives were, you may be preoccupied with trying to resolve the events that occurred then instead of focusing on now. Maybe that's why we don't remember, but I don't know. But getting back to children who do remember... I guess one of the burning questions is, why do they remember? And what can we learn from them? Tonight, we're going to talk to a number of experts on this subject. But first, here is a story about a child who claims to be the reincarnation of a dead World War II pilot. 11-year-old James Leininger looks and acts like most boys his age. But beneath his playful spirit is a very deep soul. And I said, you know, I'm really glad you're my son. And I'm, I'm just really fun to have you as my son and he says well he says I know that's why I picked you when we first met Bruce Andrea and James in 2005 his passion for World War II fighter planes was obvious I can beat the Japanese easy as pie the fascination began when he was a toddler James seemed intimately familiar with the aircrafts he started doing these little drawings of airplanes shooting that other airplanes are being shot down. Bombing ships, you see men parachuting. Here's another one where planes are dropping bombs. This is a carrier. The violent drawings were followed by extreme night terrors. He would just be crying. He'd say, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. He laid on his back and kicked up at the ceiling and he goes, Mama, the little man's going like this. And he laid on his back and kicked his feet up. The little man's going, ooh, 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 can't get out. And I said, well, who's the little man, baby? And he goes, me. I thought Bruce and I were just going to faint. They questioned, what kind of plane? Corsair. Why did your airplane crash? My plane was shot down. Who, who shot your plane? He looked at me like I was a, a village idiot. 
He said, The Japanese. Where did he take off from a boat? Do you remember the name of your boat? He said, Natoma. And his name? He always said James, but his name is James. Stunned by his son's words, Bruce tracked down veterans of the USS Natoma Bay. I wanted to disprove it. Columbus, Ohio native Leo Pyatt served on the ship. He asked uh, a few questions about, uh, did I know some of the people? Oh, yeah, I remember those people. Yes, there was a Jim Houston, a rather large shell. Just hit him in the, the engine and it burst into flames and, and went down. It was all real. James Houston, born and raised in the Midwest, was shot down over Chichijima, Japan. He got uh, very uh, quiet. The Liningers were speechless again when James met Natoma Bay veterans and recognized them by name. You're Bob Greenwald. <laughs> I'm serious. And he never met Bob Greenwald. No, he never met him before. They tracked down James Houston's sister, Anne. And he goes, uh, it's not Anne, it's Annie. She wasn't my oldest sister. I had an older sister than that. And I said, you did? Who was that? And he goes, Ruth. I mean, Ruth. Annie is what they called me when I was little, knowing my name and my sister's name, things that my brother did when he was a kid. It's too amazing to describe. James recalled his favorite childhood possessions. And when we spoke to them via Skype, they shared one specific story involving James Houston's mother. Annie had sent James the picture that her mother had painted of James Houston. And when James got it, he called Annie to thank her. And he said, where's the one mom painted of you? And so she went and found it and sent a copy. And later on, she told us that no one in the world except her brother and sister knew that there was an identical picture of Annie when she was the same age. Amazing stories like that caught the attention of Japanese filmmakers. Not long after our story aired, they flew James and his entire family to Chichijima, Japan, and the site of James Houston's plane crash. Took a tour of the island, got up on a ridge overlooking the harbor. James said, this is where the planes flew in the day my plane was shot down. Without any help, James knew exactly where the plane crashed. They held a memorial service and dropped flowers over the wreckage. And James just got so emotional and just lost it. And it was just the most heart-wrenching thing. But when it was over, it was cathartic. You know, it still gives me goosebumps to think that we actually got there and we were there and we were able to close the loop, especially for James, that it was, it was something really important to him. And when they returned, the death and destruction pictures were replaced with this. There's dolphins and there's... The Japanese ship has its flags flying. At James's urging, they put all of this and many more incredible stories on paper and published this new book, Soul Survivor. I hope that it helps people understand the meaning of how precious life is, how fast it can just blow away. The Liningers say they aren't promoting reincarnation, before James, they didn't believe in it. And I really believe that there's a purpose to this story and that the God that created us wants this story told. And I also hope that it opens people's eyes up to reincarnation. You do? Yeah, I hope it opens people's eyes up to the fact that reincarnation can happen. It is a possibility. It's not a lie. Suzanne Stratford, Fox 8 News. Joining us now for an additional perspective on why some children remember their past lives is psychic medium and energy healer Patrick Smith. And we also have Lisa Tatum, who is the producer 
of an incredible show on Lifetime. You may have seen it called Ghosts Inside My Child, which focuses on the life of various children who recall their past lives and how they deal with it. So without further ado, I'm going to throw the first question out to Lisa. Lisa, what would you say is mm-hmm. the most was one of the most compelling past life stories that you guys covered on the show? I am relatively new to the show, and the ones that I have seen that they did from the first season have been, all of them have been amazing. It's hard to pick a favorite. Um, they have done, you know, several of them stick out in my mind. Of course, the one that did, was our pilot, which was the one where the little boy, it's famous now, he was the World War II fighter plane. Uh, pilot. Um, we did a story on a little boy that remembers the Titanic with such detail, and it turns out his family believes that he was one of the people that built the Titanic. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, there's some fabulous stories that we have done, and every single story that comes to us is compelling in its own way, so it's hard to pick a favorite. They're all really, these families really open up to us and are really honest in what they bring and what they share with us. We're working right now on our second season, and so those are the stories that we're researching and working on now, um, and we're going to be shooting 14 episodes for this second season, and we're looking for families now that want to share their stories with us. Of the stories that we have done in the past that have been compelling to me, um, we did the one about the little boy in the Titanic. We did one about a little girl who believed she was a part, you know, she was in Japan and she was a nurse during uh, the bombings in the 40s. We've done um, stories where a little boy thought he was a filmmaker and they went back and they found that he very well could have been the author of Gone with the Wind and they let him hold his little Oscar. They, They took him to Hollywood and showed him, you know, the the set and the the memory the memorabilia of that time frame. Um and those are the ones that are really compelling. Sure. And to just me. want to throw it to Patrick Smith real quick. Patrick, why are some of these uh children recalling their past lives? Well what what is your experience as to why they might be recalling them now? I mean why don't more more people recall their previous lives? Well I think it's it's um an individual uh, not so much a choice, but an influence that's there where children have the ability to spontaneous travel, spontaneously travel in time and go back to a situation or an event that uh, has some relevance for them and that they can relate to. A lot of children spontaneously and travel through time. Um, there's a variety of, of reasons or causes. Some of it is um, to do with just they, they have a, a tremendous access to other dimensions and most children are pretty psychic anyway. And so they have the ability to dance in and out between reality and other dimensions. And children seem to do it much easier than adults do. So, like, what what what, what so, can a children what can a child teach us about it? Like, how would we how could we basically get to their point where we can kind of just do what they're doing? Well, it it's mostly like a we'd have to be debriefed about our um, inputs that come from adults uh, in the sense of education and restrictions that. Um, we seem to pick up along the way as we grow up that that uh, certain things are not possible 
and so it's a matter of unlearning those things and just a matter of being free and allowing the intuition to kick in as opposed to cognitive abilities which seem to hold more sway as we grow older that you know the the, the cognitive ability is prized over intuition right. and lisa you've done you've researched several mm-hmm. of these uh, families how do you, how can you tell which families are legitimately uh troubled i mean I'm sorry how can you tell which families have a legitimate child that is experiencing um you know, reincarnation, how do you tell which ones that they're not make, just making it up? Um, you, well, a lot of it is faith. A lot of it is trust. A lot of it is my gut intuition. Okay. Um, and then we do some research. I mean, the children give us bits and pieces of who they think they were, and we research out some things, or the family has already done the research and brings it to us and says this is who we think the child is. And it really is a question of, you know, how much proof do they require? How much proof do I require? Um, and it really is, it's, it's again, it's up to the family. I don't want to push anything on them or we'll research something and present it to them and they're like, nope, that doesn't feel right and then that's not right. Um, I haven't run across anybody that's making stuff up yet. Most of the things that I, the families that I've been talking to have legitimate concerns, legitimate proof so to speak although I don't I'm not I don't want to deny anybody's story so I don't want them to think oh you have to prove it to me but at the same time those families are coming to us because they're looking for closure of some sort and they want it to be proven in a way that a lot of those parents aren't some of them are really open to receiving what their child is saying some of them are not and but they're still curious or they're scared or they're worried or they don't want they want to get to the bottom of it, so to speak, to put some closure on it for themselves or for the child. Um, and I think they want to prove it, that it's that the stories are true, that their child is, is coming up with. And we look to yeah. that. We look to try to help them solve right, that. I touched base on one, on one thing. We talked about the World Trade Center before, about um, whether you either identified the person. Have you guys ever identified an individual, um, actually been able to identify by name or by location, a past or previous life of one of the children that you guys are interviewing, um, talking about their past life. Have you ever been able to pinpoint, say, listen, this life that this child is talking about, we've identified that person? Yes. we The, the past episodes that they have done, they identified um, one little boy really believed that he was a filmmaker in Hollywood and thought that he was Sidney Coe Howard. And they were able to put some of those pieces together because he said his middle name was Co, and he kept saying that that was his mother's name and that he had this daughter for Jennifer, but his mom's name was Jennifer. And she's like, no, I'm your mom. I'm Jennifer. And he's like, nope, nope, you're my daughter. And so the mom started doing research and found that there was a screenwriter in Hollywood who broke on with the wind, and it was Sidney Co Howard, and Co was his mom's name. Um, and Jennifer was his daughter, and they were able to take this little boy to the farm where the daughters were living, the grown daughters were living, and the little boy met with them and walked through the farm and was all very familiar to him. He knew exactly, he knew his way around it. He knew exactly where um, his gravestone was, and he went to visit his past life grave, if that makes sense. Um, and so he felt closure, he felt comfort, comfortable, the way that he believed that he had died, he kept saying he was crushed, and the way that 
you know, Mr. Howard died as he was crushed by a, a tractor. Um, so those things added up enough for them to believe that this is who he was, and he found comfort in that and some closure. Now, did this child actually get a chance to uh, meet with any of the living relatives of that previous life that he had lived? I be- we didn't show it, but I believe he met with the daughters that would have would have been his. Well, if it was his past life, they would have been his children. You know, I'm looking at your your credentials, and you've got major credentials on across all the major networks you work with, CBS, NBC. You know, you you're working with the biggest mm-hmm. names in the industry, and now your focus is on working with doing a show where children are trying to figure out who they were in a past life. Is this um, why are you focusing your attention on this? What what fascinates you about this uh, topic and the show? I have always been fascinated with this topic. I think reincarnation is just mind-blowing in a lot of different ways. And, you know, do you believe it? Do you not believe it? You want to believe it. These kids are telling you their tale, and they are telling you from such a young age with such honesty and such a place of purity. Um, it's an, I love taking on different projects, to get back to your specific question. And I've been really blessed in my career that I've been able to work with some of the big names in Hollywood, and I've been able to work on great shows on wonderful networks. And um, I am um, thrilled with all of that. And then a project comes along that's sort of a little bit of a passion project, or, and it fits into your time frame because different shows are you're on hiatus at different points in your career. And this particular production happened to fit in when I just had finished doing Top Model, and um, I got the call, you know, are you interested in doing something like this? And I was like, yeah, I would be. It's challenging because you've got to find these families. And so, you know, always putting the call out to anyone that's feeling like your child is going through something like this, please contact us. We'd love to talk to you. What I want to do, ask you this, both of both you guys, I want to throw it out to Patrick, and then I'll actually like you to come chime right in, Lisa, is that we? it seems that during your studies that there are children who say that they choose their parents. Uh, I find that really compelling that they tell their parents, listen, I chose you before I came in. So, Patrick, let's go to you first. Why do children supposedly choose their parents? And, Lisa, what have you found where children choose their parents? Why would they say something like that? I think they they um, feel a great deal of love for their parents, and they feel that they have a an influence in that, and that they wanted to be in a situation where they are loved and cared for and respected and and understood. Um, it's not always um, maybe a. a direct choice but an indirect choice as uh, they're choosing love as opposed to hardship and uh hmm. we've well every that's one of the things that every child that we've talked to had in common they picked these parents and they make it very clear to their parents i chose you and one little boy said there's windows in heaven mama and he looked down and he goes and i picked you and the way that he tells the story is he'd seen his parents grow up. He'd watched them for a long time and picked them. And that's fascinating to me. My husband and I were talking about this last night. It's like, wow, if you can really come back and you get to pick your parents, are you picking them because what they can bring to you or what you can bring to them? And I don't have that answer, but those are some of the things that – that's one of the things that most of these kids we talk to have in common 
is that they did pick their parents and they came in through different ways and they tell the stories a little bit different, but they do talk about heaven. They do talk about God and they do talk about, you know, I picked you and I came back to you. It's really amazing. And um, I want to thank you both for appearing on today's program and to learn more about Patrick, I think you go to Pat websites, it's patricksreadings.com and Lisa, your show is called Ghosts Inside My Child. It apparently appears on Life. Can you please tell us how they can find more information about your show? Yes, we are um, going to. Last season, we were on the Bio Channel. The A and E is rebranding a lot of their channels. We're now going to be on the Lifetime Movie Network, which is getting rebranded as LMN. If someone has a story they'd love to share with us, I'd love to hear it. We can be contacted at Ghost Inside My Child at gmail.com or you can call me directly at my office at 323-410-7852 okay listen i want to thank you guys both for appearing on today's program thank you so much thank you all right thank you thank you for having me i've come to the point with regard to reincarnation that i think not only is it a worthy subject of, of investigation but that the evidence strongly suggests that it may in fact be true. Well over 50% of the Earth's inhabitants believe uh, in some form of reincarnation. So it's, it's very widespread. And for Tom Harper, the most compelling evidence comes from the work of the late Dr. Ian Stevenson and his successor, Dr. Jim Tucker. This work began here at the University of Virginia back around 1960. Uh, Ian Stevenson was the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry. When he heard about these cases from various parts of the world of very young children who said that they remember previous lives, and he was curious enough where he decided to investigate and spent the next 40 years of his career traveling to various parts of the world. And he and his colleagues during that time, we've now collected over 2,500 cases of these young children who were making these claims. So then our task becomes trying to sort out what, what is this? What is causing kids to say this? And one way to test this is to see if what the child says actually matches a particular person who lived and died in the past. Ian Stevenson would actually go to the city, take the child with him, and in some cases the child would point to specific places bringing up specific dates and places and names. Of course, we can't rule out coincidence. We can pretty much rule out fraud in most cases because Dr. Stevenson was a very careful investigator. He wrote in an academic style and like a lawyer, presenting the witnesses, where the evidence came from. He had subjects take lie detector tests, sign affidavits. He was so concerned that the evidence would be accepted in the scientific community. We use the term solved and unsolved. And solved means that a previous person has been identified whose life matches the statements that the child made. Of the 2,500, uh, it's probably roughly 50-50 the ones that have been solved versus not solved. Even to his dying day in, in 2007, he never claimed to the scientific world, I have got the ironclad proof. Remember, he had that skeptical spirit. Nevertheless, someone as careful as he was so strongly uh, um, moved towards the possibility is, to me, uh, a fairly powerful argument. 
James Leininger was a little boy in Louisiana who uh, began saying that his plane had crashed, that he had been shot down by the Japanese. He gave some very specific details. In fact, um, this was when he was two. His parents were able to ask him questions about these horrific nightmares he had about a plane crash. And he was able to say that he'd been shot down by the Japanese and that his plane had flown from the Natoma is what he named the boat that his plane had taken off of. In addition, the, the boy later saw a picture of Iwo Jima and said that was where he was shot down. Also, it began saying that uh, he was the third James. When his dad searched online, um, he eventually found that there was the USS Natoma Bay. The Natoma Bay was involved in the Iwo Jima operation. There was one pilot from the Natoma that was killed in, in Iwo Jima, and his name was James Houston, Jr. Uh, so James Leininger would be the third James after the, the junior. Another detail that James gave was that he had a friend named Jack Larson, and it turned out that there was another pilot on the Natoma named Jack Larson. The child was talking about a past life from more than 50 years before, which is unusual in our cases. So there was seemingly no way that he could have known the details that he came up with. His father was an evangelical Christian who was totally resistant to reincarnation. But his son gave out so much information about World War II, they, they said, you know, he could not have learned this watching Sesame Street. I salute you. I think that what reincarnates, uh, as far as one can tell from all the literature and so on, is the, the essential self. When I was about two years old, I told my mother that my name was not really Barbro, it was Anna. Barbara was born in 1954 in uh, Sweden to a Christian family. And they had no idea who Anne Frank was because the diary of Anne Frank had not yet been translated in, and published in Sweden. I know my name was Anna Frank, but they insist calling me on Barbro. And my parents insisted me to call them mom and pa, and I knew they were not my real parents. Well, her parents thought this was all fantasy uh, until uh, something happened when she was 10 years old. By this time, the parents knew who Anne Frank, the historic figure, was. And they went on a tour of European cities, including Amsterdam, where the Anne Frank house is located. We were at the hotel room, and my father said that let's do the Anne Frank house first. So I called for a cab. And I found myself saying to them, we don't need a cab, we're not far away. And I knew exactly where we were. And her parents said, how could you know? You've never been here. And she said, well, I know, let me show you. And she took him by the hand and, and led him on a 10-minute walk through the winding streets of Amsterdam directly to the Anne Frank house. Then when we came up towards the house, I saw that the steps outside were different, were changed. So I stopped and I said, it's strange, they have changed those steps. When I came into that house, it was the most horrifying feeling I have ever had. Because all of a sudden I was back to my dreams. I recognized everything I had seen ever since I was a little child. And Barbara looked at a wall uh, in a room where Anne had spent time, and she said to her mother, look, uh, the, the 
pictures of the movie stars are still on the wall. I saw all these pictures from newspaper magazines that was cut out. And it was from movie stars and song stars and things. And I said to my mother, look, the pictures are still there. And it was like almost coming home. And she said, what pictures? And she looked on the wall, and I looked on the wall, and there were no pictures there. She got confused, started to cry, and the mother said, well, let's ask the tour guide. And the tour guide said, yes, indeed, the photos that Anne Frank had clipped are normally on that wall, but we took them down because people were touching them, taking them. Uh, we're going to put them under glass and then, then put them back. And her parents at that point realized uh, she was not having fantasies, that she was having memories of a past lifetime. Barbara not only had the memories, she also replicated the talent of Anne Frank and was a child prodigy writer. It was everything from poetry to little stories, thoughts about the higher power, reincarnation, where we came from, where we were going. But nothing that I had memories from being Anna Frank or anything because I had decided not to talk about it anymore. And Barbara had her first book published at age 12. And she had another eight or nine books published in her teenage years. And her first book became the best-selling prose book in Swedish history. And guess what? Barbara has the same face as Anne Frank. Uh, there's certainly evidence from our cases that there can be these memories from past lives that, that are in children. Uh, now, evidence is not the same thing as proof, but there's no question that there is empirical evidence for it. Our guest today is Caridwin Fallingstar, who is an author, a teacher of Wicca and other shamanic teachings. She's a hypnotherapist who specializes in reincarnation. She's also a psychic. Welcome to the program, Caridwin. How are you? Thanks so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Same here. Good to have you. So there's a lot that we can cover, but one of the first things I'd like to talk to you about is, in your experiences, where would you say are some of the defining instances where you believe that reincarnation definitely exists, that there's some things about reincarnation that are just so overwhelming that it's very, it'd be very difficult to question, even from a scientific perspective about it? Yeah, well, for myself, you know, it's a very uh, close subject. I... I was brought up uh, agnostic. My father was a rocket scientist, you know, was a very scientific household. And yet I started having past life memories, you know, around three and a half, four years old. I remember uh, talking to my parents and saying, oh, I'm so glad we're rich now. And they said, oh, honey, we're not rich. And I said, oh, yes, we are. Look, we have a rug on the floor instead of dirt. We eat meat every day. And I went and turned on the water and said, hot water whenever we want it. We're rich. And they were like, oh, where is this kid coming from? But I remembered being in some house with a dirt floor, and sometimes we were hungry and had to go walk a ways to uh, and pull up water from a hole in the ground. And I didn't remember how we had gotten from that place to this place. I didn't. I wasn't thinking of past life or that I died in between. I didn't realize that, but I just thought that our our, our circumstances had gotten so much better, and I was I was very happy about it. Now you know, my parents didn't have a television. I couldn't read. I had no way of um, knowing those things, and yet I did. And I've seen that with many other uh, children as well, coming up with um, information that they don't have any access to, and yet they do have that information. And so 
you start thinking there has to be some explanation for how you know kids come up with these things, how adults get you know pictures or images. They go to some go to somewhere right. else in the world, and suddenly you think, oh my god, I've been here before. I, I know this place completely. So how can you tell if it's uh, imagination between uh, imagination and what what is um, you know a legitimate past life? Like what do you what do you would say some of the telltale signs? We're talking about like children who who say that they're yeah yeah. I think uh, with small kids, you know that's that's and I'm seeing more and more of this just even on the internet. For instance, there's a a site called you know creepiest things kids have said. Well, a number of those creepiest things are uh, are obviously past life memories like. You know, here's this one where it says, uh, he says, getting my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter out of the bath one night, my wife and I were briefing her on how important it was she kept her privates clean. She casually replied, oh, nobody scoops me there. They tried one night. They kicked the door in and tried, but I fought back. I died, and now I'm here. She said this like it was nothing. Wow. Uh, now, how does a two-and-a-half-year-old uh, come up with that? Or, you know, here's another right. one where this little kid... You know, a three- or four-year-old kid says, before I was born here, I had a sister, right? Her and my other mom are so old now. They were okay when the car was on fire, but I sure wasn't. Wow. And um, have, you ever, have you had some people that you've worked with or children or even adults that vividly recall um, being involved or dying at some historically significant events like World War II? Um, yeah, I've, I, I've uh, you know, I do have a... Uh, past life practice, I and mean, I, I use uh, hypnotherapy for a number of things, but uh, I have a specialty for past life regression, and so certainly I've had people come up with things there, but I've also seen people come up with things spontaneously. You know, for instance, my, my son was just a toddler. He he would fight like crazy every time I tried to put Neosporin, you know, a healing ointment on a on a cut or, or something, and, and uh, finally he... He just, you know, at one point said, Mom, once once when I was a knight, they, they were pouring oil over the walls, and I just, I, I don't like greasy things. And I was like, okay, well, uh, this, I guess this explains why you don't want any Neosporin. Well, okay, okay. fine, we'll, we'll, we'll think of something else. <laughs> like, okay, how, how, what do you say to something like that? Right. Uh, okay, well, so, gee, we'll, we'll think of something. <laughs> but, um... Yes, yeah, so sometimes people are afraid. You know, you, we had a conversation offline. Uh, you're saying that um, sometimes that people who die like a sudden violent death, I mean, they come back quicker. And I was wondering if you could please yes. explain why that occurs. Why do you see a commonality with that? Yeah. Well, I think it's because, you know, when people uh, die suddenly, traumatically, and particularly when they're young, they feel like they have a lot of unfinished business. They say, oh, my gosh, I, I didn't I, I didn't want to die then. I didn't, I didn't feel uh, that that was right. And so... So they quickly reincarnate. I think I kind of developed that theory after seeing how many of the people I'd worked with had been alive in in World War II, you know, and that was a pretty recent time frame. But of course, you know, millions and millions and millions of people died during World War II, and uh, for many of them, they were, um, you know, unexpected and untimely uh, deaths. So I, I do think that uh, it's my observation that often when people die that kind of a disturbed way. They come back. Uh, they come back again very quickly. They want to experience it. Now, I'm curious that when uh, my understanding is that when a soul comes to Earth or comes to any existence, that it has, uh, I guess, a nation karma or a family karma. So it comes to experience these experiences as a collective group with various members of a particular family. Well, if it is that one soul that 
needs to come back very quickly, and maybe its family from a previous life is still there, how does that work out? Does it lose that whole experience of not coming back as, a, as part of the collective group? Or does that soul reconnect with the family in some way, shape, or form of its previous life in order to finish out the group family karma that it originally came in intending to fulfill? Well, I'm not sure about that. I, I think sometimes people do incarnate in clusters. Okay. Um, I've certainly seen that, too, where you kind of, it seems like you keep running into the same people over and over again, and you're trying to work something out with them. Um, but I also think people sometimes, you know, go into something that's very, um, you know, that there may be a bigger, uh, uh, the, the cluster may be bigger than you think. In other words, there may be quite a few quite a few spirits with which you're intimately acquainted and you might be with one group and then you know say check out early from that group and then come back in with another wave of some other group that you're also connected to um i think you know i think sometimes people do um have very close people that they connect with again and again and then i also think occasionally you do meet someone that is new to you and that's also kind of an exciting experience to to uh, connect with people that you don't have any previous karma with okay now let's let's throw something out there um let's just let's take the idea that uh, not all not all souls are radiant uh this beautiful radiant light or some souls that they tend to be dark and tend to be violent is there have you ever experienced any particular situations where a soul has been a destructive one on their life on earth died early and decided that they wanted to come back to i guess continue killing or continue spreading destruction is that something that is allowed to do and is it difficult is it just as easy for a dark um, related soul to come back as it is for a soul that wishes to come back with a lot of peace and love well i don't know if if souls come in those different flavors i think it's more that that people are are learning when we you know that when we come here the soul is learning, and sometimes for the purpose of learning, a soul is going to explore that dark that darker or um, more violent territory, as just something to learn about. And um, you know I had uh, one very, very interesting series of sessions that I did with a client and a student of mine. He was in this life he was a doctor, and yet he felt this feeling that he was perhaps an evil soul or a dark soul, some, someone who was not a good-intentioned being. And so our first, uh, you know, our first uh, reincarnational journey, he saw that he had been a doctor in Nazi Germany, one of the ones who did experiments on people. Yeah. And so, of course, that was very disturbing to him. He'd been killed then in, uh, in a bombing during uh, at the end of World War II. And uh, then, you know, we kept going, you know, each time we did a regression, we'd go back and find another time where he was doing very dark things and very difficult things, and we finally got back to uh, a past life in the Middle East where you had been in a, a tribe of probably what would have been Israelites, um, where he had been like an elder who had had sex with a young widow in the tribe, and she had become pregnant. And so, you know, she was stoned to death, you know, because she obviously committed adultery, but she refused to name the person she'd committed adultery with, which was him, and he was one of the ones who actually threw the stones. And so it was at that point that he decided that he, that he was a bad spirit. He was a bad soul, but he had, he had done this terrible thing. And what we were able to do was to kind of talk to him, talk to his spirit, and make him see that he had just been very frightened. You know, he was scared. And that what he did was wrong, but it came out of his fear for his own life. And then we were able to kind of heal the idea that there was something wrong with him as a spirit. And 
help him reclaim his essential goodness as a spirit who could choose to go another way. In other words, spirits can be on a path of evolution or devolution. You can be, you know, heading in either direction. But the whole, you know, I would say that the purpose is to figure out that you're meant to be an evolving soul and not someone on this um, devolutionary right. path. No, I'm just curious, but that gentleman you just spoke of, did he actually ever reconnect or have a um, marriage to that uh, woman he, he got pregnant in question? Or did he ever actually was yeah. able to make penance with that or make peace with that? Not not that he he made peace with it inside himself. I don't know. I don't know about um, you know anything about you know him reconnecting with with that particular person. That didn't happen within the frame that I knew him. But he was able to make some peace within himself and to speak to her spirit to spirit in the, in the hypnotic state and ask her forgiveness and receive her forgiveness. So so that was uh, was very healing. So are you saying that it is possible for a spirit to have a traumatic event? In- any lifetime that we're aware of, and then I can ultimately set them on a path for various lifetimes to come where they're experiencing negativity or they're reflecting back um, what we would perceive to be as evil upon humanity as a result of that one triggering event. Right, right. That's it. You know, yeah, people, you know, people's learning experiences get pretty messy, that's mm-hmm. for sure. And I'm not excusing it and saying everything. <laughs> you know, from our human perspective, everything's not okay. We do have you know, we we have ethics for a reason, and it's a good thing to have. But I think from a spiritual point of view, from a pure spirit point of view, all learning experiences are equally valid. And can you exist, can part of your soul exist in hell while part of your other conscious exists in a celestial plane or exists in a reality like the physical dimension where you can redeem yourself and grow and progressively grow but still have those aspects of your previous life stuck in hell? I I don't know. You know, I don't... don't, uh... I have, none, of, none of the work that I've done has really given me a sense of, of people going to hell after they die or something. I haven't had anyone experience that or report back on that. But I think sometimes it's very painful to, I think the past life review in which people are going back, looking back through their life and seeing what, what they've done, good and bad, uh, can be a very painful experience. You know, certainly you, could, you, you might describe that as a somewhat hellish experience if you're looking back and going, wow. I totally screwed this up. I didn't really. I mean, I mean, we all know what that's like, right? Right here in this life, right? You look back at your life and you say, oh. oh my goodness. So, what happens when you die? I mean, we have never really touched upon this thing. Actually, let's go into it a little bit. Uh, what happens when you pass? Apparently, when you die, what the moment you die, you, you just get this like life review and what that you, re- you relive everything you've ever done. And how does that whole work out? Well, you know, who knows? That's that's something that I've seen. You know, in um, you know when I'm doing regressions with people, is that they. They say that they have an opportunity to review, you know, to look back, to uh, evaluate, you know, kind of, it's like a self-grading system. How did I do? Well, you know, I I hit this mark, but, ooh, I went way off base over there, and, huh, I'm going to work on that next time. Okay, and, and I got that learning. I got that learning. Wow, I really learned that. Uh, here's this piece over here. I just kept putting it off. I didn't ever get to it, you know. So, you know, I think I think people do get a, an opportunity to think things through, to uh, to evaluate to make analysis and then maybe to, um, you know, point themselves in a certain direction, you know, for their next learning experience based on what they got out of this one. Okay. I'm just curious. Um, if we are, uh, my center said that we're all one collective humanity, that we are maybe all of the souls on earth all comprise one collective group soul. So that being said, um, have if all the souls on the earth have experienced all the experiences there are to experience 
for that particular time, for that particular evolution on the physical plane, what is the point of coming to grow and evolve if we're all connected and if other souls have already experienced things? I'm just curious, like, what's the whole point? What is the whole point of the evolution? Well, that's a good question, and, you know, I really don't know the answer, but I'm, you know, it seems to me that, indiv- you know, when I'm working with individuals, of course, I'm working with people who are currently in bodies, right? So maybe that right there just limits their perceptions, but certainly they perceive themselves to be, you know, individual souls having a series of individual experiences. So perhaps it's not enough that other people have experienced the same thing in the same way that, you know, um, you know, if, if, uh, if a person in this incarnation is white, it's, you know, they really can't understand what it's like to be black in a culture that discriminates against black. You can have empathy, you can try and understand, but it's not the same as having that experience directly. And so, you know, in that same way, even though, yes, we're all connected and we're all one, while we're here, we don't tend to experience it that way. So maybe while we're here is, you know, that's part of the deal, is to experience yourself as being separate, to experience yourself as being an individual, and to have the adventures and the learnings that that individual has. Right, and you know, what that's you, just a guess. From what you see, I mean, uh, is there usually a limit to how many lives a person will live? On uh, have it on at least on Earth, is there a, an average that you've noticed? Not that I've uh, not that I've noticed, but it's not something I ask people while they're under. Is oh, how many lives have you had, or what number <laughs> is this? Or, you know, I haven't actually, uh, you know, I've only researched that question kind of with myself and a couple of other close people to try and figure uh, figure that out. But I, I think uh, I, I don't know if there being any limit. I mean, human life hasn't really been going on that long. In this in this planet, you know, probably it's something you would think of as human a million years or less, you know. So it's um, and really, you know, in terms of Cro-Magnon, what do they think? Maybe maybe four hundred thousand years, five hundred thousand years. It's all right. So if you're able to go back in there, time. In the pen. What do you think that um, human? I mean, from what you've been able to garner, have you ever come across a question or been able to have a different perspective on how humans got to where they are? Do you think that we actually evolved? Um, from apes, from or do we do we walk into this reality? Do you think we maybe walked into Earth from a different uh, dimension? Well, I think you know there, there seems to be a pretty large amount of evidence to suggest that we're we're physically descended from apes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of our consciousness is is necessarily descended from apes either. Uh, I really don't know the answer to that question. You know, it's it's all. I think that's one of the great things about spiritual explorations, we can never really know all the answers. We just get to play around and uh, make some educated guesses. Got it. Okay. Um, so I would ask you, we're going back to children who've, um, who are well aware of the lives that they've lived, well aware of the reincarnated lives. How does that actually impact the soul's evolution and knowing what, or being aware of their previous life? And do you feel that in one way that a spirit that remembers any of its past lifetimes and what is kind of like limiting its ability to experience all the joys or all the experiences of this life that it's chosen because it's still maybe carrying some baggage from that past life that it's already lived. Well, yeah, I think you can look at it that way that yes, sometimes the baggage affects you, you know, that you've, for instance, I have certainly seen a very common theme, you know, where when I work with women on, uh, their inhibitions about expressing their power or being fully in their power, you know, we pretty reliably come up with 
some scenarios from, say, the witch-burning times or something like that where women were being killed for being powerful and where they'd had that experience. And then they've brought that limiting idea with them of, oh, yeah, let's not get too far over there. We, we know bad things happen uh, when we express our power. So, yes, it can be limiting like that, but it's also true that you can also bring in all sorts of other things that you've learned. For instance, uh, you know, people have, have uh, talked about Mozart, you know, and how he could compose uh, music at such a precocious age, three, four years old. He could, you know, five years old, he was creating whole symphonies, um, which should be impossible, but it wasn't for him. So I think we can assume that he brought in that knowledge um, from the past, and so he didn't have to relearn it in the same way that someone fresh to it would. It can also be very helpful just to have a perspective. You know, for instance, when I was young, and I, again, I had lots of past life memories, and which after the age of 10, I knew that's what they were, even though people didn't you know, talk about them. I'd read about reincarnation as something people believed in India, and I was like, oh, bingo. There you go. <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> you know, what the heck? Am I supposed to be in India? I mean, you know, how come nobody talks about it here? But at least I knew what it was then. And, um, you know, I can remember looking around and being excited about the world in which I found myself, thinking, wow, this is going to be the best life ever. This is incredible. Um, the grocery stores were of particular interest to me. That you could get food from all over the world. It was just, you know, fabulous, I thought. But it also really helped me in situations where, you know, I was going to be a somewhat unusual person. You know, for instance, that I'm, I'm a priestess, a wicca. Well, how many people do that? Well, I've done it a lot in my past life. So it's totally familiar to me. When I discovered that I was uh, bisexual, it didn't bother me. I, I wasn't upset about it like many people in our culture because I knew perfectly well that it was fine. It was, it was fine from, you know, I had been that way in other cultures, and I knew that it was just a cultural problem. People had problems with it. It was like, oh. Well, it's just that culture. It's just it's it's something you've already accepted. You feel that um, the idea of reincarnation, if accepted over on a massive scale, would basically undermine or undercut or be a direct threat to many of the um, societal religious institutions that we know in this uh, lifetime. Well, yes, and political too. You know, for instance, I had a, fr- a friend who was an Episcopalian minister who said in the Episcopalian magazine they they asked um, these people, all Episcopalians, if you believed that you were coming back in another incarnation, would it affect how you treated the earth? And and 85% said yes. 85% thought, wow, if I have to come back (laughs) to this mess, I want to make it less of a mess. (laughs) So there'd be a a very big uh, political shift in what's acceptable to do in regards to the earth if people realized you're going to be coming back here to deal with all that stuff that's happening today. You're going to be dealing with desert, desertification. You're going to be dealing with climate change. You know, this is going. To, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lack of uh, potable water. You know, I think if people realized that this was that it was their own future that they were undermining, uh, it, it might make them a little more inspired uh, to think in a futuristic way. Do you ever see that happening on a massive scale? Do um, you ever see like a, a revolution of spiritual consciousness occurring on the earth within this lifetime? I mean, let's say, for example, in the next 15, 20 years. And if so, what do you think it would take for something like that to occur? Well, I don't know. I'd like to think so, but I, I don't know. There's some... You know, I, you know, one of the things that, that frustrates me is it seems like we, you know, we keep having more and more humans on the planet. There's like, like a vast number of them, many of whom I think are very, very new souls, you know, that maybe they've just very recently tri- 
transmigrated from animals, et cetera, and so forth. They're just, you know, we've, we've got such an unevolved mass that I, I don't know. But on the other hand, I think we have to hope and think that if you get enough evolved souls, it's like yeast, that it only takes a small percentage of yeast within the dough to make the bread rise. So we have to think of it like that, that, uh, that you know, we're, we're the little yeast spores and we're, <laughs> we're doing our work and, and raising the whole, um, even though there's not that many of us. So I certainly hope there's going to be, um, you know, I, I see periodically, I see hopeful signs here and there. And I hope uh, I hope that will continue. Got it. And just want to touch upon your background a little bit because I don't think people are aware. I mean, you, I would like you if you can please go to Herodwin's um, website at theheartofthefire dot com, and you're going to learn some really amazing stuff. You're going to find that she's got a tremendous number of books. She offers classes. She offers apprenticeships and teachings on uh, to you know to improve yourself. And your background, you, you have your, you, I love your teachings there. They mix Native American, West African, Tantra, Reiki, Zen, Kundalini Yoga, Wicked and New Age. So you've got a lot of different, like, cooks in your, in your kitchen. And how do all those come into play? Like, how does that allow you, to, what has, how does it help you gain your perception? What, what would you say is the dominant uh, philosophy in that? You know, I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not very dogmatic. You know, I'm, I'm very experiential. I'm like, okay, well, let's try all these different things and see how it goes. When I'm teaching classes, for instance, you know, people will learn how to go on past life journeys, but I'm, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether they think that's literally true or whether they think it's a metaphor. You know, they can think of it any way they want. I just want them to have the experience and draw their own conclusions. And I think, the, you know, I basically just studied everything I could get my hands on throughout my life, and it's been very interesting to me to see how similar various things are, particularly all of the old pagan ways of looking at things are extremely similar cross-culturally. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's just good to be looking cross-culturally so that you don't just get too focused on the one true right and only way. You know, people tend to want to have the one true right and only way and have it be their way. And I think that's the problem we have with monotheistic religions where, I mean, the idea of monotheism was that all gods were one god, which was great, but unfortunately the way most people interpret it is that there's one god and it's my god, not your god. And so um, monotheism has really been very problematic. People don't have the spiritual evolution to grasp what it really means. And so I think um, the pantheistic pagan polytheistic ways of looking at things, uh, they, they tend to help people be more tolerant. It's like, oh, we call our love goddess this. Oh, you call her that? Oh, that's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's a relaxed kind of a, uh, people are more relaxed about differences in those, uh, in those situations. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, learning what I can, where I can. My, my dominant focus, as I say, I'm, I'm a witch. I practice shamanic Wicca. That's my dominant focus, but I have sampled from all different uh, traditions and teachers in order to just to learn as much as I can. Okay, and just curious, when you are doing a, like say for example, a past life reading on a person, do they need to be physically present? How do you latch onto their energy, and what are you what are you seeing, or are you are you seeing, feeling, or hearing when you're doing the? I, uh, 
usually, usually when I do past life regression, I actually take the person on the journey. So, so they go into trance. They actually see and experience things directly. I'm usually kind of coming along for the ride. So often I'm seeing what they're seeing right about when they see it or maybe just a, a little instant before they start talking about it. Um, so usually I prefer to do it that way because I think that very direct experience really you know, is the most powerful for people. You know, sometimes I will, you know, just get hits or pictures or stories about someone and I'll ask them, I'll say, well, do you want me to tell you a story about what I'm seeing and see if you resonate? And, and then it'll be just like that. It's essentially like I'm just getting a story from being around them. And I, don't, I really can't tell you how that happens, but it's a pretty common thing for me. I just don't usually, usually I won't share that with people unless they've come to me for a reading. If I just meet someone socially, I'm not going to start chattering to them about their past lives. <laughs> unless they specifically ask you, and it's like, hey, you know, what's going on? What, what did I do? <laughs> Who was I? Yeah. <laughs> I just like, you know, I've talked to some people about this, and everyone assumes that there's someone famous. Someone, so like, I was someone, I'm sure I was someone famous in my past life, and now I'm just taking a, a life off. I'm going to be a normal person. I'm gonna, I, I came here to work in a cubicle. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've had very, I've actually had very, very few uh, of all the many, many, many hundreds of past life uh, regressions I've done. I've, I've had very few where somebody was, was a known person. It's kind of a myth that everybody's been Cleopatra, but I think what that really is is that anyone who sees themselves in an Egyptian past life thinks they were Cleopatra. But um, you know, in other words, they try and attach a famous person onto whatever image they're seeing. You know, they see a knight, and it must be King Arthur or something. But but in actual past life regression, um, I I found that happening very very seldom. I had one person who was a minor artist in the Italian Renaissance someone that I could find when I looked him up, <laughs> and, and uh, someone else who was the leader of uh, a Cathar movement, you know, one of those um, alternative Christian things back in medieval times, um, who again, you know, you can find as a historical footnote, not a, not a hugely famous person, but someone in history. So, um, yeah, it's, it's actually very uncommon for people to... To experience it. To be someone famous just like it's uncommon in real life. It's it's not something that happens every day. You know, everyone's going to have, you know, at some point some brush with power probably. But, you know, what to, what format that would take. I know I myself had a, a life way back in what's now Turkey. It was a long time ago, long before it was, wasn't, wasn't Turkey at that time. But in that part of the world, I was sort of a priestess queen. I was the leader of my own community. Oh, wow. But that's hardly, you know, it's not uh, not anyone famous or or anyone known in, in, in contemporary life. I had my experience of power, and I, I had my experience of screwing it up pretty badly in certain ways. So what about now? What is your, what's your purpose like right now? What would you say your focus is? And also, I'm just curious, have you been able to do anything with future lives? I mean, because I posed this question to a gentleman before where, if like, apparently you go into the spirit world, and in the spirit world, if you want to call that, is eternity. So all things past, present, and future happens. So with that being said, I, I would like to think that, okay, well, the, your future life has already occurred because that's eternity. That's when all things happen. So are you able to ever tap into people's future lives and say, by the way, you have to be careful because if you don't resolve this stuff now, you're going to have to deal with this thing in like your next life and the one after that. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, people are often concerned about that when they come and work with me. They're thinking, wow, I've got some chronic thing. I really want to get it over with now, and I don't want this on my plate, you know, for my next meal. So we certainly do work on those things. I've had, um, at one point, I was asking about um, future lives, and I saw a couple of potential future lives of my own. But, um, you know, to what extent that's true, I don't know. And then, of course, I had Hello. And um, I was doing some hypnosis when she came into my trance journey, and she was all um, in kind of like a, this gear that was sort of like safari gear back in the 1800s, like a, a woman, a British woman, would wear going on safari. And I said, "What's with the uh, what's with the getup?" And she says, "Oh, this is the life I'm in now." And I was like, "Wait a minute, you can't <laughs> you can't go back." And she's like, "Of course you can." Uh, there's there's really no such thing as time. You could be anywhere at any time. And I was like, okay, I don't know. This is just too crazy for me. This is a little out there. What, well, you're going backwards now? It just seemed uh, it seemed kind of mad to me. So I don't know if that's true or not. But I do think that, that time is probably not as linear as we, think as we think it is. I, th- I think that's just the limitations of our human brain make it seem very linear but it's possible that straight line we're seeing is actually just part of an enormous mandala that's too complex for us to see or understand. Carriage Wind Falling Star, that was a great interview, and um, I'd love to have you back on the show because I think that there's a lot more we can explore. And the fact is that I think we touched upon some subjects that uh, we want to go into a lot more. And to learn more about Carriage Wind, please go to our website at theheart.com. Of the fire.com. You can find her on Twitter. You can find her on Facebook. She's got some great books. She's got services. She also has an apprenticeship program and a great blog. So, Carrigan, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you, and I really hope we'll connect again. Yeah. All right, that concludes tonight's episode of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show. Thank you so much for our great guests and for our unbelievable virtues. Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Laura Lynn, Miss Lisa Casa, and Miss Constance Ellis. To learn more about our show, please visit our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Until the next time we meet again, my friends, wishing upon you infinite peace, love, and beers. Have an unbelievable rest of the night, and thank you so much for joining us. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. 
Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. The deals are getting hotter during the dear days of summer. Get 0% financing for 60 months on all John Deere compact tractors. Plus, get a best-in-class six-year powertrain warranty at no additional cost. Hurry in today for the hot deals of summer. Offer ends August 2nd, 2016, subject to approved installment credit with John Deere Financial. Terms, conditions, exclusions, and warranty limitations apply. See dealer for details. Visit your local John Deere dealer today to take advantage of special savings going on now. Find out more at myjohndeerdealer.com.